0: the past several Sundays we've talked about stewardship. I concluded the stewardship series uh, last Sunday, so this is just going to be John chapter 4. I'm excited to get back to uh, the gospel of John this morning. But just as a short recap, one of the reasons we do this every year is uh, in terms of the stewardship month and pledge cards and things like that is because everything that we have, everything that we are, is given to us by God and that he calls us to be a steward to take care of those blessings with our entire lives. And so we talked about three things. In John chapter 3, we talked about the fact that we are stewards of our lives and God gives us a purpose and he shows us how to find that out. And we talked about how there's a deep connection between our satisfaction with in Christ and our satisfaction with our lives. And then the second week we talked about Malachi chapter 3 specifically about what it means to what does the Bible say about giving to the church? and tithes and offerings, and about how not bringing the tithes and offerings, God says in Malachi chapter 3, is robbing God. It's something He was accusing them and us of, and that He challenges us, that He will overwhelmingly bless us if we have the faith to give. The, tithe, the Bible teaches that tithes and offerings, a tithe is 10% of what God gives to you, and then offerings are the voluntary gifts to God on top of that. And that God says to test us, and we will not be able to outgive God. And then last week we talked about the tragedy of the love of money, where a, a man who was thought of by the entire society to be the best of the best, if anybody was going to be saved, it was this guy. And how he walks away from Jesus because of his tragic love of money. It's interesting, in the passage we're looking at today, this was the lady we're looking at here is, the, is someone who no one would have thought could have had the salvation. And yet she receives it. But here's a man who everyone thought should have been a likely candidate, and he walked away. So that's why we talked about that, and then the pledge cards um, are due today, and that'll finish up our time thinking about stewardship uh, this morning. But we'll be in John chapter 4. This is by far one of my, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It teaches us so much. It teaches us a lot about who God is. It teaches us about uh, the grace of God. Uh, and it also is, is really is a clinic, on what it means to share your faith with someone else, how to show interest in someone, start a conversation, and then see how it transitions into their greatest need, which is to know God and to be lo- and to be loved by Him. But as I was thinking uh, about this this deal, I, I was uh, in terms of an introduction to the sermon. I, I was I've been intrigued over the past several years by by what I'm calling the fixer upper phenomenon. Right, everyone knows, or at least a lot of people know. About Chip and Joanna Gaines and all their shows and everything that they've got going now. And, uh, you know, they've become real popular and things like that. And they go from doing all these things. But I've noticed how so many people are fascinated by renovations to their home. Or, or whatever. HGTV, back before streaming took over the world, right, was one of the most popular channels on television in terms of what people would watch. We are fascinated as a culture in this process of restoration. And there are several different spinoffs on that, right? There is restoring a car, restoring a home, restoring an antique. There's all these shows that get all this attention, and people spend all this time and think about it in the process of making something new or making something different, right? That's probably why Pinterest exists, right? Is because of this restoration idea of people restoring or making something new. Why do you think that is? Interesting to think about. You know, we've all thought about redoing our house or car or whatever it is. Why do we like restoration so much? I think it would provoke an interesting conversation, but I think that we love the idea of restoration because we like the idea of seeing old or dirty or ugly things become new and beautiful and satisfying again. And I think deep down we want to believe that we ourselves can be restored. We know that there's some rust and some taint and some dents and some brokenness to who we are, and we want to believe in our own restoration. And the overwhelming message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, and it also doesn't matter what has been done to you, that you are not beyond the grace of God to receive salvation and eternal life, to drink, as this, as this passage says, living water. In other words, there's no such thing as damaged goods to God that can't be restored. It's a beautiful message that this uh, Bible teaches, that you are worth it. So let's look at this passage, this, this wonderful passage, John chapter 4. We're only going to look at the first 26 verses this week. I'll begin reading in verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now when, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not, do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband's. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray that you would help us this morning as we worship you over your word, and that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here's a big idea. No one is beyond the grace of God. In fact, God personally seeks out sinners to save them. No one is beyond the grace of God. In fact, God personally seeks out sinners to save them. Jesus does the unthinkable, a shocking thing in this passage. That's why I titled the sermon, The Shocking Love of God. He talks with an immoral Samaritan woman and beyond that offers her eternal life. He doesn't look past her as someone unworthy of his time, but he he thinks of her as worthy of his time and attention and offers her living water. This morning, as we consider this passage, I want to look at six realities. Now, before you freak out, I know I preached too long last week, okay? All right? I got the memo. We'll shorten it up, all right? But listen, we'll move a little quicker. Got a little clock up here. Don't freak out, all right? All right, so... Six realities about the grace of God in Christ. Number one, Jesus is patient. Number one, Jesus is patient. The the passage begins that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining more and more um, people were coming to see him and that he was baptizing. And then it tells them, then it says that... that, um, Jesus left the the region because the Pharisees had brought that much attention. So Jesus is gaining more and more and more influence. He talked about this several weeks ago in John chapter 3 whenever the, the people were leaving John the Baptist and going to see Jesus. And John says, this is how it should be. But all this attention is coming to Jesus. And he's not the one doing the baptizing. His disciples are the ones doing the baptizing. But all of this attention is coming to Jesus, and so he decides to leave the region. So quick question, what's this baptism about? Well, the text doesn't explicitly say, but it's safe for us to assume based on John's baptism and based on the fact that Jesus wouldn't want to confuse us with the baptism that we practice today in the church, that it was similar to John's baptism. In other words, it was preparing them to hear Jesus' message about who he was, the Son of God and the Messiah. So it was a baptism of repentance, the process of turning away from your sin. So Jesus came out of the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan, if you remember that in Matthew chapter 4, and what's his first sermon? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That's his message. Turn away from your sin. So it's logical for us to assume that that's the nature of his baptism as well. But here's the point. He's gaining so much influence that the Pharisees are taking notice, and Jesus says, okay, because I'm getting so much influence right now, and the Pharisees are getting involved, I need to skip town. Now why would Jesus do that? Jesus skipped town because he did not want to start a premature crisis. Now, here's something fascinating. He is gaining influence, and what do leaders typically do whenever they gain influence? They want to garnish more influence. But Jesus came for a very specific purpose. His purpose for you and his purpose for them was to explain to them who he was. They were confused as to what a Messiah should be. They were confused as to how you got salvation. They were confused as to what the Messiah was supposed to do. And so he was spending the whole first part of his ministry teaching them that they were confused about the law of God. They were confused about what God demanded from you. That they were confused about who the Messiah was and he needed time to teach them that they had gotten it wrong in so many ways. And he hadn't had that time yet. And he knew if he kept gaining influence and the Pharisees got involved that the crisis would come before he had an opportunity to teach. He came to die. A crisis did arise that led to his crucifixion. But it wasn't time yet. You'll see this phrase over and over again in John's John's writing. The hour had not yet come. And it wasn't here yet. So he left. And he went through Samaria. Now this is an interesting thing to note about him going through Samaria, because at the time Jews would have taken the long way to get to the upper part of Israel. They would have traveled more distance because they didn't want to go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans so much. And we'll talk in more detail about why they did it. But Jesus goes right through. Uh, Jesus goes right through Samaria, um, and and goes right into them. Okay. Now here's the point. The, the simple point that I want to make here in this process. The first thing that we see here in this point is that Jesus is patient in how he deals with people and he's also patient in how he works out the will of God for his life. He was gaining influence and it would have been tempting to say, let's go ahead and do this. But he was following the directions of God. He was patient and he waited until the hour had come. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, is are we patient people, and why not? Because the answer is no, especially not in these days. First Corinthians thirteen says, "Love is patient." We live in extremely fast-paced society. We're always in a rush. Why? You know, I was convicted this past week. I realized that one of the one of the most frequent words out of my mouth to my kids was "hurry up." We got to do this. We got to be here. Hurry up! And I was like, I, I don't know if I don't think that's right. It was interesting, I was having a conversation. One of my favorite things to do is to have conversations with Yankees or people from other parts of the country and and try to figure out what the difference is between Southerners and where they come from, right? I use that Yankee term affectionately, by the way, right? Uh, as much as you can. Right? And so I was talking with a friend that I just met on our son's baseball team, and he was from uh, he was from New Jersey area. And we were pontificating with each other why, northerners typically are more rude cuz he was explaining to me that he is just it's just different in the south right and so we were talking about why that is and my theory is because the pace of life is so much faster in the north they always got to get somewhere and do something and so i don't have time to deal with you get out of my way i'm in a hurry so that's my personal theory that the rushed pace of life makes us impatient you know, if several of you guys like to hunt, this illustration will be lost on the ladies in the congregation, most likely. Um, except, actually, we did have a lady drop a six-point deer at the cabin, by the way. Fascinating story, but anyway. So, part of the glory of hunting is the waiting. There's a lot of waiting. But that's what makes the actual kill satisfactory is because there was so much work that had to be do leading up to it. Right? That's part of the game. How do we get... oftentimes we're impatient with our kids or with people in our life or with our friends or with ourselves because we don't understand something that God seems to understand and that is people are a process and we can't just turn the switch here's something I want you to know Jesus is patient he waited on God's timing for his life and he was also patient with the people around him All right. so the first thing we see is that Jesus is patient. Secondly, Jesus engages the outcasts of society. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The first thing that's interesting in this passage to see is that Jesus is tired. There's two important things that you need to believe about Jesus Christ. That he was the Son of God. Absolute, glorious Son of God. And the second thing was that he was a human being. You need a human sacrifice for your sin. You need a divine human sacrifice for your sin. And in this passage and several others, we see Jesus is exhausted. He had a pretty prolific ministry. He's always healing and going and teaching and doing. There's all these demands on him. And there'll be several times throughout scriptures, he's just exhausted. And here's one of the times when we can see Jesus' humanity. Now here's the reason I want to bring that up. You needed a human sacrifice, but the second thing is, Jesus can identify with your human experience. This is one of the passages we see that. And while he's resting, and the disciples are going out to buy food, a Samaritan woman comes and says, "It was the six hour. Maybe some of your translations says it was the middle of the day. Six hour was noon. Okay. So think about it. They're in a dry, arid region, and it's noon. the The practice was if you were going to gather water, you would do it early in the morning when it was cool. But she's coming at noon. You know. So I'm told in Colombia, before air conditioning, it was so hot downtown that men would often work until about 11 o'clock. They would come home, eat lunch at home, and then take a nap and then go back to work because it was just too hot to work in the middle of the day. In a similar way, this is what's happening here, but this woman does something against what everyone else is doing. She comes in the middle of the day to gather water. Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us specifically, but we can make a pretty good educated guess. She's an outcast in society. We learn in just a, we'll learn in just a few minutes that she had a sinful past and that would that it would have ostracized her from other people in the area. But she's coming because she's an outcast from society and she either people don't want to be around her or she doesn't want to be around them and so she's coming out there in the middle of the day. The other thing we see here is that... that Jews and Samaritans do not associate at all. In fact, she is shocked that he's even talking to her. And then much less what he says is, he says, hey, give me some water and let me drink out of your cup. They would have never shared the same cup. This is, she's absolutely blown away. The Samaritans were hated. Samaritans were thought unclean. They would never share the same drinking cup. And that she, this woman, was an immoral woman, and yet Jesus speaks to her and eventually we'll see, offers her the living water. Let me give you a little bit of the background to the Samaritan Jew hatred. Okay. Uh, Samaritans used to be part of the Jewish nation. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we won't go into a lot of detail now, but there was one single kingdom of Israel. And because of a rebellion, it divided into two. So you've got the one of the kings uh, of Israel, David, he had a son, Solomon. Solomon's son divided the kingdom. He was asked by his people, Hey, listen, your dad, we built a lot of cool stuff, but your dad made life hard on us. Can you loosen up a little bit? not make us work so hard? And this was Rehoboam, Solomon's son's response. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Not a great campaign speech all right, to give out all right, in the slightest. So what happened was there was another leader called Jeroboam who the people were rallying around. What ended up happening is it split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Okay, I'm giving you the cliff notes, right? Northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The problem is the temple where the Jewish people had to worship, where the people of God at this time had to worship, was in the southern kingdom. And so what happened is Jeroboam built an altar, and he built an altar in the, in the northern kingdom. And so there was conflict between northern and southern Israel. Then this happened. This is the big thing. In 1782, the Assyrians came in and captured Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. 1722, the Assyrians came in and captured the northern kingdom. And they took all the exiles away and left only the poor people. A little bit later, a few hundred years later, the same thing will happen to the southern kingdom, except it will be the Babylonians. But what happened in the meantime is the only people that were left were the poor people and foreigners came in and decimated the area. They said that people who came to the area were shocked because it was nothing but wild animals everywhere. And then these the Samaritans, which which were they used to be Jews started intermarrying with the with the foreigners and their worship started getting mixed up. It became synchronistic. In other words, like everything in a blender. I'll take a little bit of Christianity, take a little bit of paganism, and we'll just all wrap it up together. So they were half breeds and they were cult followers. In a very similar way, today we have Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics, and Christian scientists that all have some part of the truth. And oftentimes, a half truth makes the greatest lie. That was the Samaritans. They had some of the truth, they had some of the history but for whatever reason had lost it. And so there was hostility that that happened uh, between them. Then the Pharisees misinterpreted the laws of purity in Leviticus 15 and taught that Samaritans were unclean. And you couldn't even associate with them. And then this rivalry came up, so much to the point that the hatred between Jews and Samaritans was epic in a way that we wouldn't even understand. Our history in the South with the rivalry between uh, black and white wouldn't even rival this hatred between Jew and Samaritan. They absolutely hated each other. But when Jesus looked at this woman, and I need you to get this, when Jesus looked at this woman, he didn't see a Samaritan. He didn't see an immoral woman. He saw a lonely, hurting woman who was made in the image of God. He saw someone which was the reason that he came to die. Because no one is without sin. And all of the laws that, 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 that made the, the Samaritan people evil were misinterpretations of what God wanted There are so many passages in the Old Testament about how God wants to get to the world with the love of God. How the Jewish people were supposed to be a shining light to draw people in. Instead, they made barriers and walls around everything so that no one could get in. This simple gesture was earth-shattering to this woman. Let me ask you a question. We all have people in our life that either drive us crazy, or are different, or outcasts, or whatever it is. What simple steps could we take to show them the shocking love of God? You know, i found that a lot of times people are the way they are for a pretty good reason. There was a guy recently that I got to know, and his reputation preceded him, and he was just known as a really mean person, but I had never really met him and so i took a chance and we had a conversation and we just talked about nothing for 20 minutes seriously weather sports whatever you know braves are in the world series now we got a lot to talk about right go bravos right harvey there you go um, so we got a lot to talk about and after that we didn't we didn't really get into any conflict and the next time i saw him he walked up to me and just shook my hand we had brightness in his eyes i'd never seen before i'm not saying i did anything but the reality is I built a simple bridge with a shocking gesture to him, which was just simply engaging him. The, let me ask you this. Have you, have you ever wondered why some of the people in your life are mean or immoral or lonely or gruff or different? I think one of the simplest things we can do is just learn their story. Just buy them a cup of coffee. And say, tell me about your life. Jesus takes interest in people And this simple gesture shocked her. No one is beyond the grace of God. In fact, God personally seeks sinners to save them. Number three, God, Jesus offers eternal salvation as a gift. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman, the woman said, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well to drink, for, to drink himself? Jesus is, is interesting. Like I said, I don't have time today to talk about it in full, but this is really a beautiful passage to examine how we can share the gospel with someone if you're a believer in Christ. But Jesus is looking for more than a conversation, and she see, he sees that she's interested, her interest is peaked, and he starts to turn the conversation on her. He says, "Listen, I can offer you, I can offer you living water." And the woman was confused about this. You see, when they dug a well back in the day, it became a well because they hit a spring. So at the very bottom of the well, there's a spring that's coming up providing fresh water to the whole well. So when he says "living water, She's thinking that he's going to somehow grab the water from the bottom of the well because the well would fill up and the water at the top wouldn't be as fresh as the water at the bottom from the the springing up. So she asks him, you don't have a rope in a bucket. How are you going to get down? How are you going to get all the way down there to that water? And he says, indeed, this is verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become a spring in him, welling up to eternal life. Jesus is comparing what he can offer, which is salvation. He's using this illustration of water. He's comparing what he can offer to physical water. Physical water, you'll be thirsty again. But if you receive what Jesus is offering, you'll be forever satisfied. This water will, will satisfy you physically, but what Jesus is offering will satisfy you spiritually. The water that you would drink from this well is limited. There's you, 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 only so much of it. The water that Jesus is offering is a self-perpetuating spring in your soul that continually fills you up. This What Jesus is offering is the grace of God through him. This The grace, he's offering this grace as a gift, and he's offering it as the gift. You notice, he says, all you have to do is ask. Just ask me, and I'll give it to you. Is it mind-blowing? Christianity should be mind-blowing to us that the only thing that God requires of us is that we repent of our sin, we'll get to that in just a second, and that we ask and receive by faith. And that's the same thing that is going on here. We just talked about this verse a few weeks ago, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life hardest thing for us to embrace is the reality that God does not save us based on our performance. This woman had a terrible performance just like we all do. And Jesus comes into this with his message saying just ask. We are tempted to believe that there are people in our lives that are too far gone for the grace of God. We are tempted at times to believe that we ourselves are too far gone. Jesus reaches out to this woman with the grace of God, takes an everyday conversation. They're at a well, might as well have a conversation about water. Takes an everyday conversation and says, What I can offer you, you're not beyond. I don't care what your past is, you can have it if you just ask. Salvation is really that simple. It's simple to get. It's complex in how it happened. Someone had to pay for it. Jesus had to die. His blood had to be shed. Death had to be destroyed. It's not like there's not complexities to to how the reality of our gospel is true, but the receiving it is simple. It's just like receiving a gift. The grace of God is offered as a gift. Point number four, God extends this grace to sinners. Sinners. It's interesting, now she's like, all right, fine, I want the water. And now he's like, okay, now we have to deal with your sin. God extends grace to sinners. The first thing he says is, go and call your husband and come back. She replies, I have no husband. She replied, she, Jesus said to her, you are right to say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. The man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, here's a historical context, right? I'm not going to get into it in detail, but in these days, divorce was super easy. Unfortunately, in our day, divorce is super easy, and men could divorce their wives for any reason whatsoever, right? And there's all kind of ridiculous stories about how men would find a reason to divorce their wives and things like that. So we don't know this woman's story. We don't know if if she was a serial adulterer and had ruined five marriages or if she just got a raw deal several times and men just kept divorcing her and she eventually gave up on the institution of marriage. We don't know her story. We just know that there is sexual sin in her history. And Jesus wants to deal with that. He wants to free her from that guilt and shame and extend to her the grace and love of God. The reality is sexual sin is a sin. And what we do with our bodies affects our soul. This is a key area, y'all know this, that we're thinking about right now as a culture. And Jesus doesn't just skirt by it. He wants her to repent so that she can receive the grace of God. It's fascinating. In Mark chapter 10, a a love of money kept a man from salvation. And Jesus is inviting her here to repent of her sin and turn to him in grace. A refusal to repent will keep us from living water. A refusal to repent will keep us from living water. God wants to address your sin. He wants to save you from it. He want, God wants to you, as an agent of God, to lovingly address the sin in other people's life. Jesus challenged her sin. And that's a loving thing to do. We, Our sin needs to be challenged. Sexual sin is prevalent in our culture. What are you dealing with right now? Pornography is rampant. Is that your story? Repent. Receive the living water. Quit drinking out of that poison cistern. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus did not condemn her for her sin. Did you hear that? He doesn't you either, but he also didn't condone it. He didn't condemn her, but he didn't condone it. Jesus challenges her with the truth as a means of bringing her to salvation. Her sin did not make her unsavable, but she did need to repent of it. No one is beyond the grace of God. In fact, God personally seeks sinners to save them. We've seen that Jesus is patient. Jesus engages the outcasts of society. Jesus offers eternal life. That Jesus extends grace to sinners. Number five, Jesus makes true worship possible. It's interesting. She's just confronted with her sin, and naturally, just like when we're confronted with our sin, we want to change the subject. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about a religious controversy so we don't have to talk about our sin. And that's what happens in this passage. She says, Sir, in verse 19, the woman said, can, I can see you're a prophet because you just told me what, what you don't know me and you just told me my life. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that, a place, that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. All right, let me talk about what's going on here. So remember, I talked to you just a minute ago about the split, right? And so what happened is they set up and oh, the northern kingdom set up an altar. Uh, whenever they came back from exile, the northern kingdom set up an altar on Mount Gerizim. And what's interesting is the Samaritans actually still worship there today. It's it's pretty it's pretty fascinating, right? Um, but they set up this altar, and back in the Old Testament, remember, the specific location of the temple was a, the place where God's presence dwelt. And Jesus is teaching in this passage, all that's about to change. But in this particular time, she brings this up and she says, "Listen, we worship on this mountain, y'all worship on, on the other mountain. And then our fathers, Abraham and Jacob, the Samaritans traced their lineage to, to Jacob and Abraham, they worshiped on this Father. I mean on this mountain, too. And Jesus breaks into that religious controversy and says this. The time is here where that's not going to matter anymore. Where the where of your worship doesn't matter anymore. The how and the what are what matters. Now in the Old Testament, worship was tied to a place. It was tied to the Ark of Covenant. It was tied to the temple. But Jesus is teaching this woman, that something is coming and it's new. Jesus says that the where is about to be a non-issue. He focuses on the what. He's saying to her that the Samaritan religion was wrong. And salvation came from the Jews. Remember how I told you they mixed things up? It's a mixture of paganism and, the, and Old Testament Christianity. They mixed it up. He's saying that, that the Jews may have misinterpreted many things, but the promise of salvation is going, it went to the Jews and will come to the Jews, through the Jews, rather. And then he focuses on the how. Verse 23. Yet a time is coming and now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And this is how we worship today. You'll hear me say that from time to time as we worship at King's Church. That because we, Jesus has delivered us from sin through the cross, we can worship God and we don't need a place. What the gospel and the story of Christ has done has made the temple no longer a physical place, but a people. Joel chapter 2 talks about how we will be filled. If you're a believer in Christ, you will be filled. You will be the new temple of Jesus Christ. Uh, 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 that there was a worship in. He calls us here to worship in spirit and in truth. That worship should be an emotional spirit experience, Spirit that you should give your whole heart in praise and prayer and listening to God and His Word and loving Him, but worship should also be according to the truth, convicting to our heart and backed up by the Word. That worship is a call back to the Reality and hopefully that's what happens every time you engage in personal worship at your house or you come here in personal wor- or come here in corporate worship or you engage in family worship at home you're trying to work out the balance of what it means to worship God with all of your emotions and heart according to his truth worship is where we can taste and see God and his glory And Jesus is inviting her into that transformative experience. He's saying God is seeking you to worship Him. That's why we're created. And then finally this morning, Jesus is the only Savior. In verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared... I who speak to you am he. Now, remember, she had a mixed-up religion, but she had some notion of Messiah. And she says, listen, when Messiah comes, he's going to make everything uh, understandable, and he looks at her and says, Messiah's sitting in front of you. God just asked to drink the same water from her cup. He's standing in front of you, and he's offering you this. Jesus is calling her to faith in who he is. Believe that he is the Messiah, the one to come. This is the one condition that we have to receive salvation. It's not being a good person. This woman was the furthest person possible for salvation, and yet the real Messiah is standing in front of her and offering her that, that salvation. He's calling her to this Faith, he's the Messiah, the one that can fix all of her problems. He's the promised one who can make everything right. He's proclaiming that he is the only way to make everything okay with your soul. He's the only way to make everything right in the world. And he's the only one that can offer living water and eternal life. And what does he require? Ask and believe. Now, in conclusion, here's a couple things about this passage that I hope you can take away. This woman wasn't looking to be saved that day, but God pursued her. Did you see that? The same way that God is pursuing you, in the same way that He's asking you if you're a believer in Christ to be one of his agents to help pursue other people with the gospel. There are two times in the Bible that Jesus outright says he's Messiah. Mark chapter 14, he's in his trial. He's about to die for sin. He's about to be crucified. And it's a mock trial. It's a kangaroo court. And they're leveling all these accusations against him. And finally, they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, yeah. Yeah. It's what you you said. There are two places in Scripture where Jesus proclaims that he is the Messiah at his trial and to this insignificant, dirty woman. Because he loved her so much, he wanted her to know him. Friends, no one is beyond the grace of God. In fact, he personally seeks us out. And what that I hope that does for you is change the way you worship God. And also hope what it does for you is change the way you look at other people. No one is beyond the grace of God. And if you're a Christian, He has called you into this glorious purpose of helping other people know that same thing. Amen? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven and we thank you for the fact that he gives us this beautiful example of his love to a woman that everyone else would have written off. So God, help us to feel like we are worth your blood, like we aren't beyond the grace of God and help us to see everyone around us as someone loved by Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.